Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Oh, what it flashbang, what a, what a picture. It's David Cox. <laughs> and I'm Josh Matheson. So this week we are looking at chapter six of the 39 Steps, yeah, which is The Bald Archaeologist. The adventure no, of. The adventure of The Bald Archaeologist. Not so we just seem to be. Fun stuff happens with him. Mm. Is what we, we seem to be guess. just going through professions and a personal quirk about the person's appearance. Apparently. Basically, Apparently. just seems to be how we're going through this whole book. So last week was the adventure of the spectacled roadman, where Hane basically got found himself caught in a cordon, didn't he? They basically blocked off the area that they found him in. So his best chance of escape was actually just to blend in and hide. To do until... a hard day's graft, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. He, so he, he went full method, didn't he? Yes, yeah. he did. He assimilated someone's identity who was too drunk to do their job and did their job he for them. He even swapped pants with the guy. It wasn't. <laughs> but that's what well, I, I think that's a bit of a segue into um, those of you who are regular listeners of, listeners of the podcast will know that David normally does a little musical, what would you call it? Adventure, interlude. story, it's a interlude, it's a, it's a trailer to commemorate each book that we do. A now, little injection of the bonkers into prison. Yes, mm. as if we needed any more. Mm. And you've just submitted your recent addition to the catalogue of Lazy Book Club songs. Yeah. Well, um, do you want to just time. talk people through your thoughts and your process for this one? Yeah, so what if, if I mean... I. I can't imagine many people will be having 39 Steps as their first book, but um, you never know. If, if, David. if it is, if it is your first rodeo, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. hello. Um, basically, <laughs> <Welcome>. basically <laughs> I never spend more than 15 minutes. I would say <laughs> being so generous <laughs> doing it. Um, and for this one, I'm like, uh, it was fi- we finished recording last week's one. And I still had a bit of energy for my coffee because sometimes I have a coffee before. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've got an idea. Um, and I, I penned the lyrics in about five minutes. And I got okay. on the old garage band, put on a drum drum lick that I thought was like, yeah, that's kind of uh, what's in World my War head. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> two takes because the first one was, and then and then I just overlay stuff. And I don't really wow. think I don't really put any. Going, oh, that that's a bit too much. Mm. It's never too I'm much. Like, yeah, that's that's I mean, never too on. much. Never too much. Never too much. We're honoured that, 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 that like Timberland and Lady Gaga do it. Usually, usually it's go, just yeah. a one take wonder. So we're honoured that you thought. Do you know what? You I'm going to give it another go. I think well, I can do better. Is, this, this is the first time I've done a rap. That's what. Right. Ah, yeah. I think harder to achieve perfection. One lyric. One lyric didn't scan properly, and I wasn't having that. Sure. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to play this recent masterpiece for everybody now, and then um, we'll we'll come back to what we think of it in a second. So here we go. <laughs> My name is Decane, and I'm running for the fuzz. I'm stealing things. I'm Scotland, and I'm up here for the I'm bus. Things. I love swapping clothes with pieces. I love things. things. I'm doing things. things. I'm when things. I see a motor car, like Subarus or Jeeps, I think a car or bike I do not really care. But most importantly, my friends, I swap their underwear. 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 
I do uh, love the Subaru and Jeeps got a, a shout out. That really did make me happy. I was, I was so, I was trying so hard that time to listen to the little, the little bits on the top. Mm. Uh, at one point, you were like, "I can't remember what you said." Like, I, I like to swap. I, I, I couldn't hear him. I couldn't make him out. Yeah, read your lyrics out just because the, the uh, overlay. Because sometimes it can be hard to pick out the main bits of the rap. Yeah, I mean, you did I spend am. time writing these. Yeah, I feel like I've actually undersold them. Uh, <laughs> lyrics, I think, are quite good for pretty, 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 pretty special. Uh, so the foot, it goes. My name is Dick Hannay, Richard Hannay, but my name is Richard Hannay. I suppose it could. And I'm running from the fuzz. I couldn't put fuzz and people we don't really know yet. Uh, I'm up in Borney, Scotland, and I'm up here for the buzz because he didn't actually have to go there, did he? It's just oh, he didn't. Um, I love swapping clothes with peeps. I love being things like you know the road man and other people. Man, but when man. I see a motor car like Subarus or Jeeps, now admittedly none of those vehicles would have been a Subaru but you know creative so with the Subaru of their day yeah. that's the main and thing and then 40 my horsepower favorite verse, hmm. my favourite verse is I nick a car or perhaps a bike and I've richly written nick a car perhaps oh, P-R-A-P-S love it I nick a car or perhaps a bike I do not really care but most importantly my friends I swap their underwear <laughs> which is what that little segue was well, he, it doesn't say that but um <laughs> I feel like he's method enough. I th- I think that he would probably do that. It was your yeah. pants. Yeah. Mm. Also, just want to say, Richard Hannay, the way he actually got out of the Corndon, if you remember, he basically carjacked a guy who he didn't like because he sucks up to rich and famous people. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Remember, yeah. Mm. he's someone he happened to know, just happened to be driving through the middle of nowhere in Scotland. Yeah. And he was like, you know what I did at my house. You know I killed that guy. And I'm going to do the same thing to you unless you let me drive your car. And that's basically how he got out of the cordon. But did sort of tell him his whole identity in the process. So not sure if that was a smart move or not. And then told him to go to the police as well. Was like, go yeah. to the police and tell them what I did. And it's like, so what? You're just going to get him to tell them exactly where you've gone, what car you're in. Like, that doesn't seem very prudent, but... Yeah, considering we'll how much yeah, he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump off a train just because I sense that someone might be on there." But mm. like, we'll just tell someone about everything that's going on. Mm. Yeah, so it's a bit weird. It's incongruous it's with how careful he is. But yeah, it is. he does make some very odd, rash decisions, though. We we know this about him. Every now and then, he does something, and you're like, "Hannay, I don't think that was particularly smart." But okay, Come on, it's mate. your you life. Thank you. I yeah. like, and it, the, the more I've thought about it, it is so much like the show. The Hunters <clears throat> on Channel Four. Yeah, I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. Um, and actually, on that, I don't know it's a TV show, but it does feel quite legit. It is, it's genuine. Well, it's reality TV, isn't like it's it's human behavior. Um, and the amount of times that people just do stuff to, like one of the, one of the times, one of the people that was really good was uh, a poli- oh, he was a very politic politically active person in around Birmingham, and he decided that during it he was going to go to like a rally and like speak at this rally for the green party in Birmingham whilst okay. he was like, and bearing in mind the prize is like a hundred grand. Yeah. What? And he thought, so he just... is that, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I was like, I want to prove, I want to prove that I can talk on a stage in front of everybody. Does this show his lack of faith in the amount of publicity that the green party are able to garner? <laughs> <laughs> he believed that he yeah. was able to do a political rally for the green party and no one will hear about it. <laughs> Maximum yeah. one tweet, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> if a green party member falls down in the forest, does anybody hear it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
It's either that or a tree. I can't remember. <laughs> I like the Green Party. Though. Oh, dear. I think that's a better one, to be honest. Yeah, does a green, if a Green Party candidate shouts on a stage, does anyone hear him? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. It's very sad. They've got some very good policies. Anyway, should we get on with this chapter then? Chapter six? Let's find out yeah. about this new character that I'm assuming Hannah is going to start playing. He's probably going to shave his head and start digging up bones or something. Yeah, he's <laughs> just, just, just going to attack him and start, like, he's just going to degrade and start attacking people and being like, I need to become you. It's like, what? <laughs> it's become an obsession. He's going to end up in Egypt in like an excavation pit and he's going to look at his hands and be like, what am I doing? Like, why am I here? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, completely yeah. lost myself in the he's process. Gonna, he's gonna be, he's gonna be with Howard Carter, like digging up, and then he's gonna see Tutankhamun and like swap clothes to Tutankhamun. He's and, gonna like, be on Time Hunters or whatever that TV show was with Baldrick from Black Adam, yeah. like, where they look yeah. at like pots from the 14th century or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, let's time keep going. Team. Time team. Time team. Time team. Oh, time uh. team. Sorry. <laughs> Chapter six. The Adventure of the Bald Archaeologist I spent the night on a shelf of the hillside in the lee of a boulder where the heather grew long and soft. It was a cold business, for I had neither coat nor waistcoat. These were in Mr Turnbull's keeping, as was Scudder's little book, and my watch, worst of all, my pipe and tobacco pouch. Only my money accompanied me in my belt, and about half a pound of ginger biscuits in my trousers pocket. <laughs> it's a lot of biscuits. He's got to have the biscuit. And so he's lost the book. He's not, not got the book anymore. Well, no, he sent it with Mr. Turnbull, the politician oh, guy, of course he has. to send to the Home Office as evidence to be like, meet up with that. this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it was a thing of like, I've gotten all the information out of it that I can. If I yeah. separate myself from it, because obviously the men that are chasing him are after the book. So if he doesn't have it on him and they catch him, then happen. at least the book might make it to somebody who can do something about it. True. I supped off half those biscuits, and by worming myself deep into the heather I got some kind of warmth. My spirits had risen, and I was beginning to enjoy this crazy game of hide-and-seek. So far, I had been miraculously lucky. The milkman, the literary innkeeper, Sir Harry, the roadman, and the idiotic Marmy were all pieces of undeserved good fortune. Somehow, the first success gave me a feeling that I was going to pull the thing through. <laughs> Can I just say, I do love the optimist. It's like, dude, you are unsheltered in the moors of Scotland with no sleeping bag, no tent, no shelter, no proper food, no water. And you're like, oh, I've been really lucky on this so lucky. trip. It's like, Rally, you, are, you are destitute, homeless and wanted for murder. <laughs> like, you're not <laughs> lucky. <laughs> Bless him. My chief trouble was that I was desperately hungry. When a Jew shoots himself in the city and there's an inquest, the newspapers usually report that the deceased was well-nourished. I remember thinking that they would not call me well-nourished if I broke my neck in a bog hole. I lay and tortured myself, for the ginger biscuits merely emphasised the aching void, with the memory of all the good food I had thought so little of in London. There were Paddock's crisp sausages and fragrant shavings of bacon, 
and shakily poached eggs. How often I had turned up my nose at them. There were the cutlets they did at the club, and a particular ham that stood on the cold table, for which my soul lusted. <laughs> I love how it's not just ham generally, a particular ham. <laughs> a very particular, ham. very shapely ham. Ooh. Which aroused like and all like, the curves, yeah. of a, <laughs> which my soul lusted. It does sound like you know it's the one that got away, <laughs> <laughs> the ham that got away. Hourglass ham. I fell in love with a ham. Ah, <laughs> uh, you did. I, your, did... I think David, you did your song too early. There should have been a verse about falling in love with a ham. <laughs> <laughs> Charcuterie shenanigans. Yes. Uh, there you go. I do love how uh, books in this time always seem to mention the same types of food as well, like sausages, bacon, eggs, ham, like all those kinds of things. It's like Victorian novels always seem to mention all of that kind of stuff, don't they? It's just yeah. like, it's the you know. Of, but, it, yeah. but there's no, because we there's no like variety, is there? There's not like, oh, mm. no, I went to a really good Italian restaurant in. No, uh, it's true. Yeah. Oh, like, do they do dim sum? Like, you know, yeah. exist <laughs> at this point. Yeah. <laughs> My thoughts hovered over all varieties of mortal, edible, and finally settled on a porterhouse steak and a quart of bitter with a Welsh rarebit to follow. In longing hopelessly for these dainties, I fell asleep. I woke very cold and stiff about an hour before dawn. It took me a little while to remember where I was, for I had been very weary and had slept heavily. I saw first the pale blue sky through a net of heather, then a big shoulder of hill, and then my own boots placed neatly in a blaberry bush. I raised myself on my arms and looked down into the valley, and that one look sent me lacing up my boots in mad haste, for there were men below, not more than a quarter of a mile off, spaced out on the hillside like a fan, and beating the heather. Marmy had not been slow in looking for his revenge. Well, it's because you told him to go to the police. Yeah, this is quite right. I mean, if, this is why people say, and if you tell anyone and go to the police, I'll kill you. Like, that's why, like, people who perpetrate crimes tell you not to tell on them when, after they've done it. Do you know what I mean? Like... No one goes does a crime and then goes, by the way, my name's Matt Gonsalves and you can find me at da 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 address <laughs> and go to the police and make sure you give a statement. Like, no one does that. Embrace so the nature of the threat, sir. Yeah, I know. But I feel like it's just, again, he almost had to do something like that just to keep this constant pressure on Hane yes. the whole way because otherwise there isn't really any danger in the book, is there? If he's not hunted, it does get very dull very quickly. Yeah, exactly. I crawled out of my shelf into the cover of a boulder, and from it gained a shallow trench which slanted up the mountain face. This led me presently into the narrow gully of a burn, by way of which I scrambled to the top of the ridge. From there I looked back, and saw that I was still undiscovered. My pursuers were patiently quartering the hillside and moving upwards. Keeping behind the skyline, I ran for maybe half a mile, till I judged I was above the uppermost end of the glen. Then I showed myself, and was instantly noted by one of the flankers, who passed the word to the others. I heard cries coming up from below, and saw that the line of search had changed its direction, 
I pretended to retreat over the skyline, but instead went back the way I had come, and in twenty minutes I was behind the ridge, overlooking my sleeping place. From that viewpoint, I had the satisfaction of seeing the pursuit streaming up the hill at the top of the glen on a hopelessly false scent. I had before me a choice of routes, and I chose a ridge which made an angle with the one I was on, and so would soon put a deep glen between me and my enemies. The exercise had warmed my blood, and I was beginning to enjoy myself amazingly. As I went, I breakfasted on the dusty remnants of the ginger biscuits. I knew very little about the country, and I hadn't a notion what I was going to do. I trusted to the strength of my legs, but I was well aware that those behind me would be familiar with the lie of the land, and that my ignorance would be a heavy handicap. I saw in front of me a sea of hills, rising very high towards the south, but northwards breaking down into broad ridges which separated wide and shallow dales. The ridge I had chosen seemed to sink, after a mile or two, to a moor, which lay like a pocket in the uplands. That seemed a good direction to take as any other. My stratagem had given me a fair start, call it twenty minutes, and I had the width of a glen behind me before I saw the first heads of the pursuers. The police had evidently called in local talent to their aid, and the men I could see had the appearance of herds or gamekeepers. They hallooed at the sight of me, and I waved my hand. <laughs> hello! 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 <laughs> it's Mrs. Don't Fire, is it? That suddenly makes it a lot less menacing when you've got a load of burly men walking across the hill going, Hello! <laughs> There's like a wholly different type of manhunt going on. Yeah. <laughs> Two dived into the glen and began to climb my ridge. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to mention it's a dive into Glen. <laughs> but then it just got better. <laughs> Dived into Glen. <laughs> Two dived into the Glen and began to climb my ridge while the others kept their own side of the hill. I felt as if I were taking part in a schoolboy game of hare and hounds. But very soon it began to seem less of a game. Those fellows behind were hefty men on their native heath. Looking back, I saw that only three were following direct, and I guessed that the others had fetched a circuit to cut me off. My lack of local knowledge might very well be my undoing, and I resolved to get out of this tangle of glens to the pocket of moor I had seen from the tops. I must so increase my distance as to get clear away from them, and I believe I could do this if I could find the right ground for it. If there had been cover, I would have tried a bit of stalking, but on these bare slopes you could see a fly a mile off. My hope must be in the length of my legs and the soundness of my wind, but I needed easier ground for that, for I was not bred a mountaineer. How I longed for a good Africander pony! I put on a great spurt and got off my ridge and down into the moor before any figures appeared on the skyline behind me. 
I crossed a burn and came out on a high road which made a pass between two glens. All in front of me was a big field of heather sloping up to a crest which crowned with an odd feather of trees. In the dyke by the roadside was a gate from which a grass-grown track led over the first wave of the moor. I jumped the dyke and followed it, and after a few hundred yards, as soon as it was out of sight of the highway, the grass stopped and it became a very respectable road, which was evidently kept with some care. Clearly it ran to a house, and I began to think of doing the same. Hitherto my luck had held, and it might be that my best chance would be found in this remote dwelling. Anyhow, there were trees there, and that meant cover. I did not follow the road, but the burnside which flanked it on the right, where the bracken grew deep and the high banks made a tolerable screen. It was well I did so, for no sooner had I gained the hollow than looking back I saw the pursuit topping the ridge from which I had descended. After that I did not look back. I had no time. I ran up the burnside, crawling over the open places, and for a large part wading in the shallow stream. I found a deserted cottage with a row of phantom peat stacks and an overgrown garden. Then I was among young hay, and very soon had come to the edge of a plantation of wind-blown firs. From there I saw the chimneys of the house smoking a few hundred yards to my left. I forsook the burnside, crossed another dyke, and almost before I knew I was on a rough lawn. A glance back told me that I was well out of the sight of the pursuit, which had not yet passed the first lift of the moor. The lawn was a very rough place, cut with a scythe instead of a mower, and planted with beds of scrubby rhododendrons. A brace of black game, which are not usually garden birds, rose at my approach. The house before me was the ordinary moorland farm, with a more pretentious whitewashed wing added. Attached to this wing was a glass veranda, and through the glass I saw the face of an elderly gentleman, meekly watching me. I stalked over the border of coarse hill gravel and entered the open veranda door. Within was a pleasant room, glass on one side, and on the other a mass of books. More books showed in an inner room. On the floor, instead of tables, stood cases such as you see in a museum, filled with coins and queer stone implements. There was a knee-hole desk in the middle, and seated at it with some papers and open volumes before him was the benevolent old gentleman. His face was round and shiny, like Mr. Pickwick's. Big glasses were stuck on the end of his nose, and the top of his head was as bright and bare as a glass bottle. He never moved when I entered, but raised his placid eyebrows and waited on me to speak. It was not an easy job, with about five minutes to spare, to tell a stranger who I was and what I wanted, and to win his aid. I did not attempt it. There was something about the eye of the man before me, something so keen and knowledgeable, that I could not find a word. I simply stared at him and stuttered. And then he speaks. Oh, okay. So he's a little kind of like dorky, placid scientist man. 
Do you remember in the first Captain American movie, there's that little scientist that helps the Red Skull, the little Swiss guy who puts his mind into a computer? Oh, Toby Jones? Yeah, do you know who I'm talking about? I do. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because he's got that kind of like, he's the sidekick who's kind of very intelligent, but knows he's not in charge. And that kind of seems to fit this guy here because he seems to be somebody who's like waiting for the other person to make a move and he's almost like studying him. I simply stared at him and stuttered. You'll seem in a hurry, my friend, he said slowly. I nodded towards the window. It gave a prospect across the moor through a gap in the plantation and revealed certain figures half a mile off straggling through the heather. Ah, I see he said, and took up a pair of field glasses through which he patiently scrutinised the figures. A fugitive from justice, eh? Well, we'll go into the matter at our leisure. Meanwhile, I object to my privacy being broken in upon by the clumsy rural policeman. Go into my study, and you will see two doors facing you. Take the one on the left, and close it behind you. You would be perfectly safe. And this extraordinary man took up his pen again. And this is really weird because, like, if somebody just barged into your house, because that's what Hanay's just done. He didn't knock and wait for the guy to let him in. He just walked, walked straight in. into the conservatory, yeah. And then you could see that he was being pursued by the law. You would not help him. Or at least you'd go, oh, yeah, go in that room, you'll be safe. And then you'd go to the policeman when they arrive, yeah, he's in that room, There's no, it's a dead end, you can't get out. Do you know, it's a bit, do you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like? It's like one of those, um, it's like a video game, you know, and you can just like roam and yeah, yeah. you can pretty much... It's like talking to somebody like, like Game Boy. No, not <laughs> game Boy. Yeah, Pokemon. Pokemon, you just walk into their house and you just walk yeah, right up and you just like move their stuff around and nick their items and just yeah. <laughs> flip them off and but it's not even that away. you walk up and you walk right up to their face and only when you click A but you can stand there for half an hour everyone just in yeah. their nose like <laughs> and no one engages with you but yeah you just walk into houses and they're like ah oh, well I have the map of that this place would you like to see it here I don't need this anymore it's so stupid isn't it I got woken up the other day because the police were um, trying to find a suspect who climbed into my garden and oh my god across, they were climbing across all the gardens along the back behind our houses and literally I heard the police dog barking and I looked out my bathroom window and at the bark of the police dog the guy went oh no I'm gonna get caught and then jumped over another garden and I went straight around the front and went yeah he's in garden number five <laughs> yeah I'm like I ain't playing I want you caught because I want to go to bed and these blue lights are keeping me up <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my gosh I'm like sorry I'm I'm the snitch I'm the one who's just like yeah there he is get him <laughs> yeah this time next week, we'll find Matt in witness protection. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you, Matt? I did as I was bid and found myself in a little dark chamber which smelt of chemicals and was lit only by a tiny window high up in the wall. The door had swung behind me with a click like the door of a safe. Once again, I had found an unexpected sanctuary. All the same, I was not comfortable. There was something about the old gentleman which puzzled and rather terrified me. He'd been too easy and ready, almost as if he had expected me. And his eyes had been horribly intelligent. 
No sound came to me in that dark place. For all I knew, the police might be searching the house, and if they did, they would want to know what was behind this door. I tried to possess my soul in patience and to forget how hungry I was. Then I took a more cheerful view. The old gentleman could scarcely refuse me a meal, and I fell to reconstructing my breakfast. Bacon and eggs would content me, but I wanted the better part of a flinch of bacon and half a hundred eggs. And then, while my mouth was watering in anticipation, there was a click and the door stood open. I emerged... <laughs> Could you actually just, he just like opens the door and like he's just standing there just salivating oh. in the safe. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the like old guy, be like, <laughs> oh no, oh. I've got a wrong in here, haven't I? Like, yeah, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I emerged into the sunlight to find the master of the house sitting in a deep armchair in the room he called his study, and regarding me with curious eyes. Have they gone? I asked. They have gone. I convinced them that you had crossed the hill. I do not choose that the police should come between me and one whom I am delighted to honour. This is a lucky morning for you. Mr. Richard Hannay. <gasps> he knows who he is. He knows. Ooh, Do you think he's read the paper loud. and seen his picture in it or something? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure unless he's he, about to say... Unless he's aware he of his work. He didn't do much, did he? He's not famous right. for anything, is he? My hope is that he's actually involved in Scudder's conspiracy. That would be good, wouldn't it? Because it might finally further this blooming storyline that we've been waiting for six chapters to actually yeah, go it, somewhere. It, it kind of could do with that. Yeah, you're right. It could do with that. It needs some spicing up. Come on. Mm. Yeah. As he spoke, his eyelids seemed to tremble and to fall a little over his keen grey eyes. In a flash, the phrase of Scudders came back to me when he had described the man he most dreaded in the world. He had said that he could hood his eyes like a hawk. Then I saw that I had walked straight into the enemy's quarters. <gasps> so he's Uh-oh. the guy who's like in head, the head of the person searching for Kim. Eek. Yes. Eek. Was that I mean, what Eek. are the chances? Come on, I'm... are you telling me that like he's just walking randomly through the Scottish Highlands and he just happened across the person who's in charge of the whole conspiracy? Well, and I mean, in many ways, very he convenient. Sort of, he sort of he could have been. Sort of, imagine everyone. Sort of, you think they're herding him aeroplane. towards the house? They could have shepherded him in the right direction, and he's just I mean, believed that he's escaping. But enough. really, he's going exactly where where they wanted him to. Mm. My first impulse was to throttle the old ruffian and make for the open air. He seemed to anticipate my intention, for he smiled gently, and nodded to the door behind me. I turned and saw two men-servants who had me covered with pistols. He knew my name, but he had never seen me before. And as the reflection darted across my mind, I saw a slender chance. I don't know what you mean, I said roughly. And who are you calling Richard Hannay? My name's Ainsley. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the names to pick. <laughs> I don't know who you mean. I'm Ainsley, like Ainsley Harriet. 
That's, I knew that's why you were like. <laughs> I imagine about eighty. I, I imagine he like he. Can't, I th- I think he sort of like put two thumbs to his chest like this. Don't you mean? Ah, amazingly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he got a lime out of his pocket and started going like this. <laughs> a little sprinkle over his head. Yeah. <laughs> Ainsley. For our American <laughs> contingent, Ainsley Harriet is a British chef from off the telly. Who's, who's very charismatic. He's got a very good personality. He seems yeah. like he'd be a right laugh at a party. He calls all the, he calls the ingredients like, oh, was it like peppy pepper or something like that? Yes. Like, yeah, and he always does like a cheeky... He's, he goes, ooh, ooh, a little ooh, cheeky... As he's, ooh, <laughs> as he's doing it. He's a character. <laughs> so, he said, still smiling, but of course you have others. We won't quarrel about a name. I was pulling myself together now, and I reflected that my garb, lacking coat and waistcoat and collar, would at any rate not betray me. I put on my surliest face and shrugged my shoulders. I suppose you're going to give me up after all, and I call it a damned dirty trick. My God, I wish I had never seen that cursed motor car. Here's the money and be damned with you and I flung four sovereigns on the table. He opened his eyes a little. Oh no, I shall not give you up. My friends and I will have a little private settlement with you. That is all. You know a little too much, Mr. Hannay. You are clever actor, but not quite clever enough. He spoke with assurance but I could see the dawning of a doubt in his mind. Oh, for God's sake, stop jawing, I cried. Everything's against me. I haven't had a bit of luck since I came on shore at Leith. What's the harm in a poor devil with an empty stomach picking up some money he finds in a bust-up motor car? That's all I've done. And for that, I've been chivied for two days by those blasted bobbies over those blasted hills. I tell you, I'm fair sick of it. You can do what you like, old boy. Ned Ainsley's got no fight left in him. I could see that the doubt was gaining. Will you oblige me with the story of your recent doings? He asked. I can't, governor, I said in a real beggar's whine. I've not had a bite to eat for two days. Give me a mouthful of food and then you'll hear God's truth. I must have shown my hunger in my face, for he signalled to one of the men in the doorway. A bit of cold pie was brought, and a glass of beer, and I wolfed them down like a pig, or rather, like Ned Ainsley, for I was keeping up my character. In the middle of my meal, he spoke suddenly to me in German, <gasps> but I turned, whoa, we picked that well. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. But I turned on him a face as blank as a stone wall. Then I told him my story how I had come off an archangel ship at Leith a week ago and was making my way overland to my brother at Wigtown. I had run short of cash, I hinted vaguely at a spree, and I was pretty well on my uppers when I had come on a hole in the hedge and looking through had seen a big motor car lying in the burn. I'd poked about to see what had happened and had found three sovereigns lying on the seat and one on the floor. There was nobody there or any sign of an owner, so I had pocketed the cash. But somehow the law had got after me. But I'd tried to change a sovereign in a baker's shop, 
the woman had cried on the police, and a little later, when I was washing my face in a burn, I had been nearly gripped, and had only got away by leaving my coat and waistcoat behind me. They can have the money back, I cried. For a fat lot of good it's done me. Those perishers are all down on a poor man. Now, if it had been you, Governor, that had found the quids, nobody would have troubled you. You're a good liar, Henne, he said. I flew into a rage. Stop fooling, damn you. I tell you, my name's Ainsley, and I never heard of anyone called Hanne in my born days. I'd sooner have the police than you with your Hannays and your monkey-faced pistol tricks. No, Governor, I beg pardon, I don't mean that. I'm much obliged to you for the grub, and I'll thank you to let me go now the coast's clear. It was obvious that he was badly puzzled. You see, he had never seen me and my appearance must have altered considerably from my photographs, if he'd got one of them. I was pretty smart and well-dressed in London, and now I was a regular tramp. <laughs> I do not propose to let you go. If you are what you say you are, you will soon have the chance of clearing yourself. If you are what I believe you are, I do not think you will see the light much longer. He rang a bell, and a third servant appeared from the veranda. I want the Lanchester in five minutes, he said. There will be three to luncheon. Then he looked steadily at me, and that was the hardest ordeal of all. There was something weird and devilish in those eyes, cold malignant, unearthly, and most hellishly clever. They fascinated me like the bright eyes of a snake. I had a strong impulse to throw myself on his mercy and offer to join his side, and if you consider the way I felt about the whole thing, you will see that that impulse must have been purely physical, the weakness of a brain mesmerised and mastered by a stronger spirit. But I managed to stick it out and even to grin. You'll know me next time, Governor, I said. Karl, he spoke in German to one of the men in the doorway, you will put this fellow in the storeroom till I return, and you will be answerable to me for his keeping. I was marched out of the room with a pistol at each ear. The storeroom was a damp chamber in what had been the old farmhouse. There was no carpet on the uneven floor, and nothing to sit down on but a school form. It was black as pitch, for the windows were heavily shuttered. I made out by groping that the walls were lined with boxes and barrels and sacks of some heavy stuff. The old place smelt of mould and disuse. My jailers turned the key in the door, and I could hear them shifting their feet as they stood on guard outside. I sat down in that chilly darkness in a very miserable frame of mind. The old boy had gone off in a motor-car to collect the two ruffians who had interviewed me yesterday. Now, they had seen me as the roadman, and they would remember me, for I was in the same rig. What was a roadman doing twenty miles from his beat, pursued by the police? A question or two would put them on the right track— 
Probably they had seen Mr. Turnbull. Probably Marmy, too. Most likely they could link me up with Sir Harry, and then the whole thing would be crystal clear. What chance had I in this moorland house with three desperados and their armed servants? What's hilarious is is that you think up to this point, obviously he thinks he's probably been quite, like, careful... And then you reel off the amount of loose ends that he has left like, as he's been yeah, going really, around. really quite stupid. <laughs> and you're like, there is a lot of people out there who can you're identify like, oh, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to, yeah, I want to see this book from the perspective of his pursuers, just like, just like interviewing people on the train. It was like, yeah, and then he just like jumped off. Oh, yeah. okay, <laughs> yeah, and you just screamed. Okay, that helped. That, that narrows it down a bit. Yeah. And or he like has actually trusted quite a lot of people with his yeah. narrative as well, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. He's with just told real everybody. To trust Every single you, person. Have you, seen, have you seen this man? Yeah, he did a speech for an hour at our conference. <laughs> yeah, on Australia what, and the emus. Australia guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's, um, did everyone get a good look at him? Yeah, yeah, we were staring at him for an hour. In fact, yeah. I did a sketch for the, uh, the local gazette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if the two people you saw him dressed as the Roman were just like, Okay, it's blatantly him, but do we just play along? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just like, like okay, actually what's happening is he's yeah. so easy to find that like, do you know what? We'll catch him tomorrow. This is actually quite funny. Just let him like talk nonsense <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> Imagine yeah, if, the, if the police did that with uh, suspects. Yeah, like... that would be amazing. <laughs> just played like it's like a cat playing with a mouse before yeah. it eventually eats it. They're just a like, serial yeah. killer, but let's just leave it a day longer. Yeah, see what he does. Here's where we find out that literally all the places that he's visited are within a five-minute walk of each other. <laughs> it's just like, it's this guy just keeps wandering around. Everybody's driving in circles. Yeah. I began to think wistfully of the police now plodding over the hills after my wraith. They, at any rate, were fellow countrymen and honest men, and their tender mercies would be kinder than those ghoulish aliens. But they wouldn't have listened to me. That old devil with the eyelids had not taken long to get rid of them. I thought he probably had some kind of graft with the constabulary. Most likely he had letters from cabinet ministers saying he was to be given every facility for plotting against Britain. That's the sort of owlish way we run our politics in this jolly old country. <laughs> I feel like this guy's giving him way too much credit. All he literally would have to do is open the door and go, nah, I haven't seen him, sorry, and shut it again. And the police would yeah. just walk away. Like, they can't do anything. Like, if you don't want them in that, your house, they don't, they're not allowed, like, you don't have to open the door to them. All of my neighbours the other day when the police came around, just none of them opened the doors and the police just had to keep walking. Right. It's not like they can just break your door down for no reason just because a suspect happens to be in your area. Yeah, presumably all, there's a lot of paperwork involved in a search warrant. More exactly, yeah. and it's yeah, like, and and, for, and they don't know that the person who lives at this property is involved in this manhunt in any way. It could just be some random farmer who just lives in the middle of a field. Yeah. So he's not going to show you blooming cabinet minister letters, is he? He's literally just going to say, "Who? Yeah, no, I've just you know, no one's come by. Sorry, shut the door. Done." Like, I think I think a lot of this is just 
Hanay in his own head thinking he's James Bond and just living this <laughs> spy life fantasy in he his own brain. He certainly <laughs> seems to be quite comfortable in this lifestyle now, doesn't he? He's Mate, we're going to find it. out in the last chapter that he's actually just in a padded cell and this was all in his head. Yeah. <laughs> I do like I do like the idea when there's like no one around. He just like runs and like, you know, just hides by the edge of the door with, <laughs> with his, hand, his hands and his fingers together. <laughs> and I'm taking him and that going... And then, like running, like Alan Partridge does it. He pretends to be like James Bond. He's like, "Look, yeah. you're in the middle. You're in the middle of yeah. shit." He's not. I'm just like saying somewhere remote. Just, just there's no one around. <laughs> just like doing barrel rolls. Mission Impossible role, yeah, yeah, doing barrel rolls down the middle of Regent Street when it's really busy. And he's leaving the crumbs for them on purpose because <laughs> actually it would be pretty easy in this day and age to just get away. But he knows if it's like, oh. <laughs> The basis of this is just low self-esteem. It's just the first time in his life he's felt wanted. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why. (laughs) The three would be back for lunch, so I hadn't more than a couple of hours to wait. It was simply waiting on destruction, for I could see no way out of this mess. I wished that I had Scudder's courage, for I'm free to confess that I didn't feel any great fortitude. The only thing that kept me going was that I was pretty furious. It made me boil with rage to think of those three spies getting the pull on me like this. I hoped that at any rate I might be able to twist one of their necks before they downed me. The more I thought of it, the angrier I grew, and I had to get up and move about the room. I tried the shutters, but they were the kind that lock with a key, and I couldn't move them. From the outside came the faint clucking of hens in the warm sun, Then I groped among the sacks and boxes. I couldn't open the latter, and the sack seemed to be full of things like dog biscuits that smelt of cinnamon. But as I circumnavigated the room, I found a handle in the wall, which seemed worth investigating. It was the door of a wall cupboard, what they call a press in Scotland, and it was locked. I shook it, and it seemed rather flimsy. For want of something better to do, I put out my strength on that door, getting some purchase on the handle by looping my braces round it. Presently, the thing gave with a crash, which I thought would bring in my warders to inquire. I waited for a bit, and then started to explore the cupboard shelves. There was a multitude of queer things there. I found an odd vesta or two in my trouser pockets and struck a light. It was out in a second, but it showed me one thing. There was a little stock of electric torches on one shelf. I picked up one and found it was in working order. With the torch to help me, I investigated further. There were bottles and cases of queer-smelling stuffs, chemicals no doubt for experiments, and there were coils of fine copper wire and yanks and yanks of thin-oiled silk. There was a box of detonators, and a lot of cord for fuses. Then, away at the back of the shelf, I found a stout brown cardboard box, and inside it a wooden case. I managed to wrench it open, and within lay half a dozen little grey bricks, each a couple of inches square. I took up one, and found that it crumbled easily in my hand. Then I smelt it, and put my tongue to it. After that, I sat down to think. I hadn't been a mining engineer for nothing, 
and I knew lentonite when I saw it. I mean, he says I I knew lentonite when I saw it, but he didn't. He had to taste it in order to know it was lentonite. I've got a torch. (laughs) I know it's lentonite when I eat it. (laughs) I wanted it to be dynamite because I wanted to sing. Miss Dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) He ruined it by saying lentonite. Yeah, it's not quite the same. (laughs) I mean, you never know. (laughs) You could come up with a knockoff version of Miss Dynamite. Yeah, that. that isn't jackpot of a cupboard, though. That's like, a jack. Yeah, it yeah, is. He's done very well. Do he's going to rig the door and blow it up, then. Oh, he's going to blow a hole in the side of the barn, isn't he? And this run away. Fantastic. I news. mean, this seems very stupid to me. If you were the people who were locking someone up, you wouldn't put him in the cupboard where all of your <laughs> explosives and things for your plan room. are. <laughs> yeah. Good that his, you know, his previous skill set as a in the mining trade back in South Africa coming in handy, mm. so he can see is using his, uh, you know, his his skills to get himself out of a mouse. I mean, I would hope I would recognise mm. explosives if I saw them. Yeah, but I wouldn't know what to do with it. Is no, it just that's a case true. Of, like, I wouldn't know how to set up the fuse and what chemicals are needed. No, you do it. You do it like the Looney Tunes. You 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 do it all like you'd, you'd light it and then look around and then it would, and as it went to a blow, you'd look, turn to the camera and like wave. Wow, wow, wow! And have a little help sign. Yeah. yeah, I'd love it if it was if it said Acme on all of them. With one of these bricks, I could blow the house to smithereens. I'd used the stuff in Rhodesia and knew its power. But the trouble was that my knowledge wasn't exact. I'd forgotten the proper charge and the right way of preparing it, and I wasn't sure about the timing. I had only a vague notion, too, as to its power, for though I had used it, I had not handled it with my own fingers. So, in conclusion, he is as useless with this stuff as we would be. That's correct. Great. Yeah. <laughs> his, his recognition is as far as it goes. <laughs> Great. But it was a chance. The only possible chance. It was a mighty risk, but against it was an absolute black certainty. If I used it, the odds were, as I reckoned, about five to one in favour of my blowing myself into the treetops. But if I didn't, I should very likely be occupying a six-foot hole in the garden by the evening. That was the way I had to look at it. The prospect was pretty dark either way, but anyhow, there was a chance, both for myself and for my country. The remembrance of little Scudder decided me. It was about the beastliest moment of my life. But I'm no good at those cold-blooded resolutions. Still, I managed to rake up the pluck to set my teeth and choke back the horrid doubts that flooded in on me. I simply shut off my mind and pretended I was doing an experiment, as simple as Guy Fawkes fireworks. (laughs) I got a detonator and fixed it to a couple of feet of fuse. Then I took a quarter of a lenonite brick and buried it near the door, below one of the sacks, in a crack in the floor, fixing the detonator in it. For all I knew, half those boxes might be dynamite. (laughs) Teehee! You said you wanted to. You know that's going to be a buzzer, don't you? That's going to be a buzzer. That's going to be a quiz. quiz. (laughs) Teehee! If the cupboard held such deadly explosives, why not the boxes? 
In that case, there would be a glorious skyward journey for me and the German <laughs> servants and about an acre of surrounding country. There was also the risk that the detonation might set off the other bricks in the cupboard, for I had forgotten most that I knew about Lentonite. But it didn't do to begin thinking about the possibilities. The odds were horrible, but I had to take them. I ensconced myself just below the sill of the window and lit the fuse. Then I waited for a moment or two. There was dead silence, only a shuffle of heavy boots in the passage, and the peaceful cluck of hens from the warm out of doors. I commended my soul to my maker, and wondered where I would be in five seconds. A great wave of heat seemed to surge upwards from the floor, and hang for a blistering instant in the air. Then the wall opposite me flashed into a golden yellow and dissolved with a rending thunder that hammered my brain into a pulp. Something dropped on me, catching the point of my left shoulder. And then I think I became unconscious. My stupor can scarcely have lasted beyond a few seconds. I felt myself being choked by thick yellow fumes and struggled out of the debris at my feet. Somewhere behind me I felt fresh air. The jams of the window had fallen, and through the ragged rent the smoke was pouring out to the summer noon. I stepped over the broken lintel and found myself standing in a yard, in a dense and acrid fog. I felt very sick and ill, but I could move my limbs, and I staggered blindly forward away from the house. A small mill-laid ran in a wooden aqueduct at the other side of the yard, and into this I fell. The cool water revived me, and I had just enough wits left to think of escape. I squirmed up the lade among the slippery green slime till I reached the mill-wheel. Then I wriggled through the axle-hole into the old mill and tumbled onto a bed of chaff. A nail caught the seat of my trousers, and I left a wisp of heather mixture behind me. The mill had been long out of use. The ladders were rotten with age, and in the loft the rats had gnawed great holes in the floor. Nausea shook me, and a wheel in my head kept turning, while my left shoulder and arm seemed to be stricken with the palsy. I looked out of the window and saw a fog still hanging over the house and smoke escaping from an upper window. Please God I had set the place on fire, for I could hear confused cries coming from the other side. But I had no time to linger, since this mill was obviously a bad hiding place. Anyone looking for me would naturally follow the laid, and I made certain the search would begin as soon as they found that my body was not in the storeroom. From another window I saw that on the far side of the mill stood an old stone dovecot. If I could get there without leaving tracks I might find a hiding place, for I argued that my enemies, if they thought I could move, would conclude I had made for open country and would go seeking me on the moor. I crawled down the broken ladder, scattering chaff behind me to cover my footsteps. I did the same on the mill floor and on the threshold where the door hung on broken hinges. Peeping out, I saw that between me and the dovecot was a piece of bare cobbled ground, where no footmarks would show.
Also, it was mercifully hid by the mill buildings from any view from the house. I slipped across the space, got to the back of the dovecot, and prospected a way of ascent. That was one of the hardest jobs I ever took on. My shoulder and arm ached like hell, and I was so sick and giddy that I was always on the verge of falling. But I managed it somehow. By the use of out-jutting stones and gaps in the masonry and a tough ivy root, I got to the top in the end. There was a little parapet behind which I found a space to lie down. Then I proceeded to go off into an old-fashioned swoon. I woke with a burning head and the sun glaring in my face. For a long time I lay motionless, for those horrible fumes seemed to have loosened my joints and dulled my brain. Sounds came to me from the house, men speaking throatily, and the throbbing of a stationary car. There was a little gap in the parapet to which I wriggled, and from which I had some sort of prospect of the yard. I saw figures come out, a servant with his head bound up, and then a younger man in knickerbockers. They were looking for something, and moved towards the mill. Then one of them caught sight of the wisp of cloth on the nail and cried out to the other. They both went back to the house and brought two more to look at it. I saw the rotund figure of my late captor, and I thought I made out the man with the lisp. I noticed that all had pistols. For half an hour they ransacked the mill. I could hear them kicking over the barrels and pulling up the rotten planking. They then came outside and stood just below the dovecot, arguing fiercely. The servant with the bandage was being soundly rated. I heard them fiddling with the door of the dovecote, and for one horrid moment I fancied they were coming up. Then they thought better of it and went back to the house. All that long blistering afternoon I lay baking on the rooftop, Thirst was my chief torment. My tongue was like a stick, and to make it worse I could hear the cool drip of water from the mill laid. I watched the course of the little stream as it came in from the moor, and my fancy followed it to the top of the glen, where it must issue from an icy fountain fringed with cool ferns and mosses. I would have given a thousand pounds to plunge my face into that. I had a fine prospect of the whole ring of moorland. I saw a car speed away with two occupants, and a man on a hill, pony-riding east. I judged they were looking for me, and I wished them joy of their quest. But I saw something else more interesting. The house stood almost on the summit of a swell of moorland which crowned a sort of plateau, and there was no higher point nearer than the big hill six miles off. The actual summit, as I have mentioned, was a biggish clump of trees, firs mostly, with a few ashes and beeches. On the dovecot I was almost on a level with the treetops, and could see what lay beyond. The wood was not solid, but only a ring, and inside was an oval of green turf, for all the world like a big cricket field. It didn't take long to guess what it was. It was an aerodrome and a secret one. The place had been most cunningly chosen. For suppose anyone were watching an aeroplane descending here, he would think it had 
gone over the hill beyond the trees. As the place was on the top of a rise in the midst of a big amphitheatre, any observer from any direction would conclude it had passed out of view beyond the hill. Only a man very close at hand would realise that the aeroplane had not gone over, but had descended in the midst of the wood. An observer with a telescope on one of the higher hills might have discovered the truth, but only herds went there, and herds do not carry spyglasses. When I looked from the dovecot, I could see far away a blue line, which I knew was the sea, and I grew furious to think that our enemies had this secret conning tower to rake our waterways. Then I reflected that if that aeroplane came back, the chances were ten to one that I would be discovered. So, through the afternoon, I lay and prayed for the coming of darkness. And glad I was when the sun went down over the big western hills and the twilight haze crept over the moor. The aeroplane was late. The gloaming was far advanced when I heard the beat of wings and saw it volplaning downward to its home in the wood. Lights twinkled for a bit and there was much coming and going from the house. Then the dark fell and silence. Thank God it was a black night. The moon was well on its last quarter and would not rise till late. My thirst was too great to allow me to tarry, so about nine o'clock, so far as I could judge, I started to descend. It wasn't easy, and halfway down I heard the back door of the house open and saw the gleam of a lantern against the mill wall. For some agonising minutes I hung by the ivy and prayed that whoever it was would not come round by the dovecot. Then the light disappeared, and I dropped as softly as I could on the hard soil of the yard. I crawled on my belly to the lee of a stone dyke till I reached the fringe of trees which surrounded the house. If I had known how to do it, I would have tried to put that aeroplane out of action, but I realised that any attempt would probably be futile. I was pretty certain that there would be some kind of defence round the house, so I went through the wood on hands and knees, feeling carefully every inch before me. It was as well, for presently I came on a wire, about two feet from the ground. If I had tripped over that, it would doubtless have rung some bell in the house and I would have been captured. A hundred yards further on, I found another wire, cunningly placed on the edge of a small stream. Beyond that lay the moor, and in five minutes I was deep in bracken and heather. Soon I was round the shoulder of the rise, in the little glen from which the mill-laid flowed. Ten minutes later my face was in the spring and I was soaking down pints of the blessed water. But I did not stop till I had put half a dozen miles between me and that accursed dwelling. End of chapter. I think the thing that I enjoyed most about that chapter was the fact that they were like so realistic with how somebody actually reacts to a bomb going off because you know so many times mm. in movies somebody's like involved in an explosion and they just get up and run away or walk yeah away they sort of like, get over it that just doesn't happen like nah. the, the the noise the light like it's so disorientating like you know the fact his arm and his leg was hurting the fumes like the dizziness and the there. nausea yeah. and the yeah 
it was actually kind of nice that somebody was actually being really realistic with what it would be like to be in an explosion in a room in a cellar like you know at close range yeah so it definitely made it a lot more interesting if you ever play on like call of duty or game like that it makes the screen go fuzzy for about two seconds. So. Oh, does it? Okay. So I have experienced uh, what it <laughs> firsthand. Of course, I mean, I've, I not, I've not played knowledge. any of those games for a while, but you know, and 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 the uh, and the controller vibrates as well. Ah, so, yeah, I mean that's that makes pretty it bad, very isn't real. It? Pretty accurate. Yeah. It's wow. Basically, the, like having your arm blown off. The realism. <laughs> I can't even. I would like I mean, to play the 39 Steps game, though. Like, I'd Yeah, love yeah. Like, it would actually skinny. be a pretty good game to be rich like as hiding from an aeroplane. Like, easing your way along the dovecot, and then you have to like shut up. because you. Can and if you get around. seen by the plane, you get captured and lose a life and start again. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. the, for me, the, the one of the fun bits is like, like racking your brain, looking around a room, trying to pick up clothes to build yourself a disguise. Like, no games do that. That's true. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, like you've got to hide, like, you know, pick an outfit or pick a costume that makes you play oh, yeah. it or something. Yeah, it no one like does that. Janitor, janitor, or Ket- the caretaker, we don't have janitor. Uh, uh, party clown, uh, policeman. <laughs> Mime. <laughs> I actually, you do you know what? Hooker. <laughs> I think this is a great idea. And if anyone's in game development, it's kind of like yeah. Call of Duty meets it Grand Theft Auto the meets The Sims. You know, yeah. it's a good, good thing. Yeah. And like one where it's not highlighted. Choose your own adventure type thing. Yes. You just run through a thing of washing lines and you've got to pick the right outfit off of them to like (laughs) do the next stage or something. And there's like mini puzzles and stuff. Yeah. Like like the, um, when he was the cypher, for example. Oh yeah, figuring out the cypher. We should just make a 39 steps game app, smartphone game. Make it to the train on time. There you go. Yeah, that's what we should do. We just need some money. <laughs> <laughs> we just need some money. Give us your so money. Hanay's on the run again. He managed to get away from evil German dude. We're yeah. still in the middle of Scotland, still in a field. Yeah. I mean, at least we've and still met none the his pursuers. That's yeah, kind of true. nice. We've ticked one box. We're like, we've kind of met the baddie at the top now, which kind of has yeah. kind of taken that mask off. Sure, true, true. But true. Um, again, still none the wiser as to how he's going to stop no. this actual plot. Still none the wiser as to what his overall bigger plan is. I think I it, all if, of if his legs seem to be on the anything, guy going back a... to his foreign office person, basically. Yeah, if anything, quite a uh, uh, quite an annoying end to the chapter because effectively yeah. he's like, and I'm back in the heather. Oh, for yeah. 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 <laughs> And then I saw a man and the man was doing something different and I went yeah. over to him. Uh, uh, I would have rather. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, I better lie. Yeah, <laughs> I would have rathered if they'd managed to keep him hostage, and then take him to wherever whatever's happening is happening. Yeah, and then he had to escape there and stop it. Do you know? Because then he'd be he in the he's thick like of it. taking a step forward mm. rather than in, just ending in up the back lion's on the den. moor. That's it. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Just go and live in a cave and it'd never get found. Yeah, I genuinely thought that he was going to sort of stick around that that place for a little bit longer. Like he'd have mm. an interrogation, he'd learn something, but then still somehow manage to escape. And then, yeah. you know, oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, is it that time of the show again, Josh? It's that time of the show, Matthew, to play. Guess what the next chapter's called? What we've worked out the pattern is it's the adventures of and in a descriptor and a career. Well, so, I mean, just to get ahead of something here, uh, I think I think that the, the, the 
formula still works, but just don't give me the adventure of this time. We've broken that oh. habit, apparently. Oh, there is no adventure of. But oh, it could, okay. it could very easily have the adventure of before it, and it would still make sense. Okay. So. Hopefully, well, I... hopefully, it means that it's going to develop the plot, not that like the author goes. Do you know what? This chapter's so boring. I can't even call it an adventure. It's not even. <laughs> an adventure. <laughs> it's just somebody who talks to along the way. I didn't want to say yeah. the, the boring anecdote of, so I thought I'd just leave it. Yeah. <laughs> the DMT well, with someone not particularly exciting. Okay. I'm going to go with the smelly pharmacist. The smelly pharmacist. Any advances on the smelly pharmacist, David? <laughs> um, oh, I want to go for something a bit more. Now, what was I reading about? Um, just randomly. I was reading about rag and bone men. And I, oh, and yeah. yeah. Sort of like buy any old thing. And they basically, if you had stuff Good like one. scrap metal and stuff, and they'd come and buy it. And I didn't realize there was rag and bone men around as late as like the late 1990s in around Mate, the place there's where one I... around the corner from me really what, did he go around and just like but apparently they used to like go around and like shout and like everyone like brought out their yeah stuff. No, they don't do that but there's like a rag and yeah. bone man like the coffee shop i go to near me the around the back there's an alley and there's there's a sign that says rag and bone men no way you sure it's just not the artist oh well, yeah <laughs> Or, or knowing like hipsters today, it's probably like a tattoo parlor or something like that. Me, um, so I'm going to call it the Rag and Bone Man. There's no descriptor uh, there, okay. Just the oh, Rag and Bone Man. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, the trick of the Rag and Bone Man. Oh, okay, okay. I'm actually just I'm just looking up a term because the, the descriptor, if you will, I, did, I don't know what it, I, I didn't know if it was we a real We don't know what it means. Term. And it is a real term. So I was just looking up the definition of it. Uh, so chapter seven is entitled The Dry Fly Fisherman. And I What's can tell you, dry fly if you look fishing? very confused, dry fly, fish on fishing, land. dry fly fishing is a particular angling technique in which okay. the, lure, the lure is an artificial fly which floats yeah. on the surface of the water and does not sink below it. So it's not oh, live bait. It's on top. It's called dry, right? Even though it technically still gets wet. Okay. But using an artificial fly rather than a real maggot or a real... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I mean, probably what we should have done was pick a profession that would actually happen on the moors. We both kind of picked professions that are definitely city-based professions, really. Probably should have gone with, say, the shepherd. We're so urban. Or Yeah, exactly. I don't know who else is in the countryside. The... The farmer. Hiker. Shepherd. The arborist. Leaf collector. Uh, hermit. <laughs> serial killer. I don't know. Sure. Like. <laughs> the Moors murderer. Oh, Del- okay. Teletubbies. <laughs> don't know. Oh, dear. Well, if you've got any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to suggest any professions of the rural variety that we have not thought of, you do so on Twitter and you will do it at, at Lazy Book Club Pod. That yeah, would actually right. really help. Yeah, massively help. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you'd like to become uh, the first uh, benefactor of the new Lazy uh, N- Lazy Book Club 39 Steps video game, uh, please let us know <laughs> on Instagram at Lazy Book Club Pod. You can also invest in the Lazy Book Club Pod at. Patreon, <laughs> oh, yeah. genuine, with a very low fee, <laughs> yeah, of legitimate three dollars a month. Help us get towards our phone app game dream. That's right, and you get an extra episode a month and access to the videos as well as a little thank you for supporting us. 
Otherwise, we will see you next week for the Dry Fly Fisherman. We'll find out what that's about. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Good fly.